0: Good morning. morning. Hope you all had a good weekend. I know um, Thanksgiving weekend can be fraught with a lot of uh, different things, family, friends. Uh, Some of you are walking back into situations with family that uh, you'd prefer not to, uh, but maybe some of you had some redemptive experiences with that and and saw the Lord work. Excuse me. Saw the Lord work, and uh, I know that we're all coming in this morning in different places. Uh, emotionally, spiritually, physically, uh, we've eaten too much, maybe we've drank too much, not a lot of sleep, whatever it might be. Um, we're all here this morning coming in in different places. And so, like um, Kent said, uh, I bring greetings from uh, our brothers and sisters on the northwest side. We're thankful for what God is doing here downtown. Um, thankful personally that so many of our folks Uh, were shepherded, were cared for during their time here before we launched out Soma Northwest. And so it's fun for me to come back and meet some of you, see some of you again, renew acquaintances, uh, and open the Word of God with you this morning. And as Pastor Kent said, um, oftentimes when we talk about global missions, the first thing we do is we jump to, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to do in global missions. And so this morning, where I want to start is to give us some background and give us the foundation to ask a different question, a more important question, the foundational question that we should be asking when it comes to global missions. And that question is this, what is God doing? What is God doing in our world? What has has God been doing? What is God doing? And what will God continue to do? to do in our world? And the answer to that question is this. God is filling the whole earth with his presence. God is filling the entire earth with his presence. People are being transformed by the presence of God. Places are being transformed by the presence of God. Systems and structures are are being transformed by the presence of God. Life with God, under the rule of God, is becoming a reality. It's not fully here. It's not full reality. But God is making all things new through his presence across this globe. And that ties directly to where we've spent the better part of a year together as a church across our Soma congregation in the book of Exodus. If you remember Exodus chapter 9, in the midst of the plagues, in the midst of Pharaoh, the, the ruler of Egypt, his stubbornness towards the Lord God of Israel, refusing to let the people of Israel go. God, through Moses, tells Pharaoh, I have raised you up. For this purpose. i raised you up for this purpose so that my name will be proclaimed throughout the world. Everything that God did to deliver his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt was so that the world would know that he is the one true God. If you also remember in Exodus chapter 29, after God has given Uh, his people all these instructions about building this, this place, this structure, this tabernacle where they would worship him. He's given all these instructions about the priesthood and what these men, these Levites, would do to minister to him and to minister to the people on his behalf. He tells Moses, I will dwell among my people and they shall know that I am God. They shall know that I am God. And then in Exodus chapter 40, which we looked at several weeks ago, at the close of this book, the tabernacle has been completed. The priesthood has been consecrated and established. This tabernacle, which was a microcosm of creation, a, a place, a sacred place, in the midst of the chaotic world that the Israelites were living in, we read in Exodus 40 that finally God's presence, His glory comes and fills that space. Fills that space with His presence, with His glory. That was an object lesson for the Israelites, for what God wanted to do, not just in this one tiny space of poles and curtains, but what God's desire was for the entire earth, That his presence would fill that entire, the entire earth as his presence filled that space. God also told Israel that they had a role to play in this mission, that they had to participate in that mission of God filling the earth with his presence as they camped around the mountain of Sinai and as God spoke. To Moses, as he spoke directly to his people, he told them that his desire for them was that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation in the midst of all the other nations of the world, so that all the other nations of the world would see Israel and see what God was doing for Israel, in Israel, and that they would know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the one true God. That through them, as Kent mentioned, God would fulfill his promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. That all the nations of the world would be blessed through them. But what do we see? Israel failed, didn't they? We read throughout the story of Exodus. And then we read throughout the pages of the Old Testament that time and time and time again, Israel failed to live up to what God had asked them to do, what God had created them as a people to do, to fully represent him, to participate in his mission, to fill the whole earth with his glory and with his presence. They couldn't do it. They weren't able to do it because they were just like you. They were just like me. They were people who were flawed. They were people who were broken. They were people who were selfish. They were people who were sinful. They were people who chased after other gods and chose to follow other ways of life than the way of life that God had laid out for them to live. They couldn't fully meet the expectation that God had set before them. They couldn't fully participate and fulfill the mission of God On this earth. And that's why this morning we find ourselves looking squarely in the eyes of Jesus. Shocker, you came to church, we're going to talk about Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want to answer two questions with you. The first, why did Jesus come? It's a pretty straightforward question. Straightforward answer. Why did Jesus come? But the second question is where I want to spend most of our time. It's a question that I don't think we ask enough. And that's the question, how? How did Jesus come? So why did Jesus come? How did Jesus come? And this ties in perfectly to this Advent season. The word Advent is taken from the Latin word, which means to come. The coming of Jesus. Why did he come? How did he come? So would you turn to John chapter 1 with me this morning? The book of John, first chapter. Come on, man. John chapter 1, and let me start in verse 1. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Why did Jesus Since we left the story of Exodus, God had been revealing himself more and more and more and more to his people and to this world. If you remember Exodus 34, after the children of God, the people of God, Israel had chosen as they were camped at the foot of the mountain that God's presence inhabited, the cloud, the thunder, the lightning, they decided we don't want that. We want to build a cow of gold, and we want to worship that. And God, in his wrath, says, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And now I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. Moses intercedes on their behalf. And notice, he doesn't twist God's arm. He doesn't have to plead and plead and plead with God. He simply says, God, forgive us. And what does God do? God forgives And the beautiful thing about that is that at that moment, God reveals more of himself to his people than he ever has before. And in Exodus 34, you remember, God communicates, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who has a name, a God who is merciful and gracious, a God who is slow to anger, a God who is abounding in steadfast love, a God who is faithful, a God who is just, A God who is forgiving. And generation after generation after generation, God shows this. Shows who He is in different ways. Revealing what is really true to His people. What is reality. What is really real to His people. But what we see is one fundamental truth that stays the same. Is that there is still a separation between God and humanity there is still a distance there is still a bridge that they can't cross excuse me that they can't cross they couldn't really know this god whom they were created to know. They couldn't really experience the full whole person transformation that God desired them to experience. And that is why in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews writes that in various times and in various ways, God spoke to his people through the prophets. We see that throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. But the writer of Hebrews says, now he speaks through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what John is getting at here in the first few verses of chapter 1 when he refers to Jesus Christ as the Word. God's revelation, God's truth, God's truth taking on creative form in an an active way, taking on a personal attribute in the, the form of Jesus Christ. And that word came, John says in verse 4, to bring light, to bring life through light. And what we know about light is that it invades the darkness. Where light is, darkness cannot be. And when the Bible talks about darkness, it talks about darkness in a spiritual sense, that we can't see we don't know where we are we don't know we can't know where we want to go in the midst of darkness that people and places aren't where they're supposed to be and aren't caught up in the presence of god like they were intended to be They're living in an unreality, in a distorted reality. That what we see as truth is not really truth. And John says that the word came as a light to show us what is true. To show us the truth truth about God, to reveal what's true about us as human beings, to reveal what is true, really true, about the world that we live in. And in verses 11 through 13, what John makes clear is that this light has come and there is no escaping the light. Everyone has to deal with what this light reveals, the truth that this light brings. There is no escaping it. And John says that some people reject it. Some people see the truth that Jesus brings, the light that Jesus sheds on God and ourselves and this world, and some people will choose to reject it. Some people will say, I don't want that. I want this. I want to stay where I am. I don't want what God has for me. I don't want to believe what God says is true. But John says others will receive it. Others will embrace it. Others will see the light. As, as Isaiah said, a people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those folks will receive it. And John says when we receive that light, when we receive the truth that is found in Jesus Christ, we are born into the family of God. No longer is there that separation between us us and God. No longer is that there an inability to experience the full transformation that God desires us to experience through Jesus Christ. It is ours because we have become children of God, born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God and in doing this Jesus Christ reveals the glory of God to this world. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What is God's mission? To fill this earth with the knowledge of Himself. To fill this earth with His presence. And John says that when we have seen the Word in flesh and blood, we have seen the presence of God. We have seen what God is like. And that's why it's interesting in verse 18, he reminds us no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God, but when we see Jesus, when we are transformed by Jesus, when we encounter Jesus, we know what God is like. Jesus Christ in flesh and in blood is the physical manifestation of God. The mission of God is to fill the entire earth with his presence. Jesus came to do that work, to do that mission. And if you remember, before he died, In the garden, in John 17, as he prays to his Father, Jesus boldly declares the work that you have given me to do, I've completed it. In Jesus Christ, the mission of God to fill the earth with his presence is fulfilled. Is fulfilled. It is finished. That is why Jesus came. But how did Jesus come? Notice, it's not he appeared to be flesh. He looked like a human. John says, no. He became flesh. And he dwelt among us. He became a human being. He became like us. And he dwelt with us. In the Greek version of the Old Testament... That word dwelt is the same word translated tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. And what we see is that God's desire to dwell with his people is now fully realized in Jesus Christ. The presence of God is here. It is with us and it is in us, those of us who have been born of God. Those of us who have been transformed by the spirit of Jesus Christ, God's presence is here now. And so what does that mean? Where we go, God goes. God's presence is here. God's presence is filling the earth as men and women and boys and girls come into his family. The presence of God, the kingdom of God, life with God, under the rule of God, is available now. Now. God's presence, walking and talking in the streets, in the houses, in the temple of Jerusalem. John writes, we have seen his glory, the glory of God in the man Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became like humanity and lived in the world in order to accomplish God's mission in the world. Would you turn with me to Philippians, the letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Paul does an amazing job of explaining more and more what this is like. (coughs) Philippians chapter 2. And Paul begins this chapter in this letter addressing a conflict that's risen up in this church in the city of Philippi between two members of this church who are going at it with each other, and it was causing some divisions and some friction, um, some factions in the church. And, And Paul lifts up Jesus as the paradigm for how these folks are supposed to live with each other. He lifts up Jesus as the paradigm of humility. He lifts up Jesus as the paradigm for uh, considering others more important than ourselves. He lifts up Jesus as the paradigm for looking out for others' best interests before we look out for our best interests. And what Paul says, starting here in verse 5, is this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is saying here is that look at Jesus, because Jesus wasn't selfish. Jesus wasn't, considered, wasn't considering what's best for him before what was best for you. Jesus wasn't counting himself more significant in his life and his wants and his needs and his desires more important than yours. Jesus didn't grasp or cling to his rights as God. What Paul is not saying here is that Jesus gave up his equality with God, that that Jesus stopped being God, what Paul is saying, that Jesus didn't use his equality with God to his advantage or exploit it for his own interests. That Jesus emptied himself of all selfishness, of all uh, uh, self-serving motives, and he emptied himself and poured himself out in love for others. As N.T. Wright, Bishop of Durham wrote, Rather, the eternal Son of God, the one who became human in and as Jesus of Nazareth, regarded his equality with God as committing him to the course he took of becoming human, of dying under the weight of the world's evil. This is what it meant to be equal with God. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. Exodus 34. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. What God says is true about him. We see fully in Jesus Christ. God who took on flesh. Who became a human being. Who allowed. The beings that he created. To crucify him. There is no triumphalism. In this mission of Jesus. There is no Uh, colonialism or imperialism or exploitation in the way Jesus lived, in the way that Jesus did his ministry. He made God's glory known through humility and self-sacrifice. And he did it by becoming like those to whom he was sent. Jesus came to humanity by becoming He came to Israel to call Israel back to faithfulness to their God by becoming a Jew. He didn't ignore Jewish custom. He didn't ignore Jewish culture. In fact, he fully participated in it. He fully adopted it. And you know, there's, it's kind of popular to say like, you know, Jesus or religion. That Jesus wasn't wasn't a religious guy. And I get where. People are the point people are trying to make when they say that. But man, when you read the Gospels, what you see is Jesus was he was a Jew. He was a Jew of Jews. He was fully invested in being a Jew. We see that Jesus observed the Passover festival. He observed all of the other feasts and festivals that what it meant to be culturally and religious religiously a Jew he was regularly in the synagogue worshiping and participating in the religious life of the Jews he attended weddings he attended funerals he read publicly from the Jewish scriptures just like every other Jewish rabbi did and in his penultimate teaching the Sermon on the Mount What we hear, what we read, is not Jesus throwing all of Jewish tradition and law and everything that God had handed down to his people in the Old Testament out the window. What we see instead is that Jesus affirms that and says that this is good, this is true, and this is really what God meant for you and for you in this life. And that's what John means in in John chapter 1 when he says that Jesus came to his own people, Jesus was a, came as a Jew and came to his own people who were Jews. How did Jesus come? By making God's glory known in a way that people could see, in a way that people could hear and touch and understand in their context, in their culture, in their way Of life. I want to close by asking one more question. What does this mean for us? As we see how Jesus came. And as we see the way that he lived. His life. His ministry. What does this mean for us here today? As Soma Church. As Pastor Kent said. As we look forward. To participating in this mission of God around the world, what does this say to us? I want to give you two examples from my past. The first is from my high school days. I think I was a junior in high school. And um, we had a new student come to our school that year. His name was Samuel, and he was uh, from South Korea. And uh, I really... Jived with Samuel like we he was super artistic he was just a a fun guy to be around he liked sports we we had a really good time getting to know each other but as I got to know him I found out that before Samuel had been here he his family had been in Brazil and they had come from South Korea to Brazil as missionaries they had lived in Brazil as a time as missionaries and now, they were in my hometown, <laughs> a small rural hometown in Appalachia, as missionaries. His parents had moved there. They had started a business there. They had sent their son to the public school there. And man, I've got to tell you, this blew my categories. It completely blew my mind because I grew up in a church that was super involved in global and world world missions. We had this huge board out in the lobby of our church with all the pictures of the missionaries that we supported and that we were associated with. We had missionaries coming in monthly to our church, giving updates and and speaking about what they were doing and what they were a part of. Uh, how they were a part of God's mission, where they were in the world. But the thing about that is I looked at that board. That board was full of missionaries who were white Americans, which which was great. There was nothing wrong with that. But here in my class, I had a guy who was my same age, whose parents were missionaries, He was a missionary. They were from South Korea and they had showed up in a virtually all-white town to live life there so that they could minister to people in this town. It's completely broadened my understanding of what God was doing in the world. That people from all over the globe, from various cultures were participating in the mission of God by going to other people of different cultures and different ethnicities. You see, the mission of God isn't tied to one particular cultural identity. It's not a white American thing. It's not just an American thing. The mission of God, God's presence Filling the entire earth doesn't require a certain cultural conformity. And it's really sad if you read the history of global missions in the Western church. What you will see is that there, time and time and time again, God's mission was intertwined and tangled up in colonialism, in democracy building, and in in cultural conformity. Church, for us to participate in God's mission of filling the entire earth with his glory, with any level of fruitfulness, means that we have to go to people who are far off by being aware of our own cultural and ethnic biases. We have to be willing to live in ways that we normally wouldn't. We have to be willing to lay down our lives, For the sake of others. As Jesus did. Let me give you another example. The summer before my senior year of college. I was uh, in Slovakia. Of all places. In uh, Eastern Europe. I was on a mission trip. With Campus Crusade for Christ. And it was a miserable summer. It was a miserable summer for me. Because I was fighting God. I was resisting God. Because I knew what God. I, I knew what God was revealing to me. I knew where he wanted me to go with my life, and, and I just I didn't want to have anything of it. But I also happened to be reading this book that summer, a biography of a man named Hudson Taylor, a book that was written by his son. Hudson Taylor was born in England to parents who were fascinated with the Far East, as it was called back in those days. And they prayed upon the birth of their son that God would use their son in his work to the people of China. And as Hudson became a teenager and God saved him, he spent the next few years preparing to do just that. He trained himself in medicine. He studied Mandarin. He immersed himself in the scriptures and in prayer. And in 1853, he sailed out of Liverpool, England, on his way to Shanghai, China. Shanghai in that day was a treaty port that was opened up by the Chinese after the first opium war to foreigners. There was only a, a, a few ports where people outside of China could enter in and could live. And as Taylor arrived there and began to do ministry there, God put upon his heart that he wanted to take the gospel and he wanted to minister to people not just in this port city, but in the interior of China by traveling several hundred miles up the Yangtze River. But in this call and in this burden that he had, he knew that this would require a particular identification with the people that he would have to live in a way that was different than he did in this commercial port city that was filled with lots of foreigners. And he came to the conclusion that to reach those in the interior of China, he would need to go all in. And his way of doing that was to adopt traditional Chinese dress. And you may not think, well, that's not a big deal. like That seems to make sense. But listen to what his son wrote in this book, about this decision. He says, but the step was not as simple as it seemed because wearing Chinese dress in those days involved shaving the front part of the head and then letting the hair grow long in the back. No missionary or other foreigner ever conformed to such a custom. Hudson Taylor had been in China for a year and a half and realized the social ostracism such an action would involve. So for a time, there was a struggle. Though he was increasingly convinced of the wisdom of the step, from a higher point of view, it was access to the people he desired. You see, this was so foreign, but it was also forward thinking for his day. It was customary for missionaries in that time to show up in a place and desire that the people to whom they were ministering adapt to them, that they would share the gospel to them, that they would disciple them, but not just in the ways of Jesus, also in Western living and in Western cultural conformity. Missionaries tangled up in colonial aims would never have dreamed of adopting traditional Chinese dress. So Hudson Taylor cut his hair. He bought Chinese clothes, and listen to what his son wrote Happened. He wrote everything opened up after that in a new way. On the return journey to Shanghai, he was not even recognized as a foreigner until he began to preach or distribute books and see patients. Then, women and children came around much more freely in the crowds were less noisy and excited. Their homes we're open to him as never before. And it was possible to get opportunities, quiet conversation with those who seem spiritually interested. The fruitfulness of Hudson Taylor's ministry to the Chinese people can't be understated. He became the standard bearer for much of foreign missions in that time and since. And I encourage you to read more of his story and to to learn more of his legacy, which is still bearing fruit today. But none of this would have happened without his desire and his intention to identify with the people as much as he could, the people to whom God had sent him, to understand who they were and to immerse himself as much as he was able to their way of life. One of the things that we have been very serious about in building up Soma Church and and giving us a foundation for what it means to be in this city is that we minister here and we exist here in this city not knowing that we are not of this world but we are certainly in this world. That we live in real places. That we work in real places. That we play with real people in this city. That we are real people living alongside other real people who have a way of life, who have a culture, who have an understanding of what it means to be in their life in this city. And we do our best as a church and as individuals, to understand who we are living around, to understand where God has placed us. And as we immerse ourselves in those places here, what it enables us to do is to love people where they're at. It enables us to meet real needs instead of made-up needs. It enables us to communicate, the good news of Jesus in a way that people can understand. It enables us to show real gospel hospitality to those who are looking for it, to those who need it. As a church and as individuals, as we think about participating in the mission of God, as God fills this entire earth with his glory, and we think about our role in that, we must commit to minister to people here the way we would minister to people far off. Because it's been said, we can't expect to do anything in another place that we aren't willing to do here first. And so my encouragement to you As you think about, what is my place in this? What is God calling me to do? Maybe God is calling me to pray. Well, certainly. (laughs) There's no maybe about that. Maybe God is inviting me and calling me to give and to provide support. Maybe God is calling me to go to a far-off place. When we think about our policies, when we think about sending people, when we think about supporting people and partnering with people in other places around the world, when we think about praying people, it all, praying for people and the work of God, it all starts with laying down our own preferences. It starts with what makes us comfortable laying that down so that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation can know who God is because they know us. We are infants in this journey. We are just getting started here. But I want to encourage us that a place that we can start is right out here. And our commitment to ministering to this neighborhood, to the real people who live here, addressing the real needs that are here, speaking the real language that's spoken here, will move us in a direction where we can be confident that as the Spirit of God moves us to go far away, that we will be able to do so with much greater fruitfulness because we've practiced it here. We've done it here. We've been involved with it here. We've given our lives to it here. One of my favorite songs to sing during this time of year is the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And the last verse that we often sing, we sing, O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease and fill the earth with heaven's peace. Rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel, God with us. My encouragement to us this morning as a church is that we would be open and that we would be available to God using us in His mission. And that we wouldn't let things that make us comfortable, identities that we hold on to, and and cultural preferences that we have prohibit us from God making His name great throughout this world. That when people see us, they know what God is like. I want to invite you this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, to come and to participate in a meal that the church has participated in for thousands of years, of taking a piece of bread, dipping it in the juice, As an act of saying, God, we recognize that you came to us. That you made yourself like us in order that we could be brought into your family. That we could know life with God under the rule of God. That we could experience the transformation of all of who we are. Being brought back in line with who you created us to be. So if you are a believer Now, follower of Jesus this morning, I encourage you to come. Come rejoicing that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and come rejoicing in the hope that one day Christ will come back again because the glory of God has filled the earth. We will have stations up here, and in the back there will be a gluten-free station over here to my right. If you'd like to pray with somebody, if you'd like to talk with somebody, there will be some people standing back here in the, in the back corner uh, who would love to do that with you during this time. Let's come and take this meal. God, we, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Jesus Christ, we praise you this morning that you came in a way that we would be able to see the grace and the truth of, of God made real walking and talking, living in this life. We pray that the joy of the gospel, the joy of being brought into the family of God, the joy of knowing that you have come, but also you are coming back again, that you would use that as fuel for us to move out of this space, out of spaces that we are comfortable, out of spaces that feel good and feel safe to us, into places where you can use us in what you're doing to make your name known. We give you ourselves this morning, and we ask that your spirit would move in us and would move through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.